And now, Manufacturing Matters with your host, Cliff Waldman. Good day, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of Manufacturing Matters. I'm Cliff Waldman. I'm the host for this show, one of many on Manufacturing Talk Radio. This is the show where we look at manufacturing through both a telescope and a microscope. We look at the big political and economic headlines. They matter a great deal to U.S. manufacturing performance and prospects. But at this time of revolutionary and evolutionary change in almost everything that surrounds the manufacturing sector, we have to go deeper. And the watchword here is new. New science, new technology, new markets, new economic thinking, and we are here to help our listening audience understand how all of this leads to a new day in U.S. manufacturing. When I started this show a little more than a year ago now, I promised you cutting-edge topics with the best minds around for those cutting-edge topics, and today is no exception. Anybody who comes to the manufacturing sector, who came to the manufacturing sector in the early 2000s, had to understand the lean paradigm. I got the education that I do have in lean thinking entirely from this gentleman. I'm grateful to him. I learned quite a lot. He was there in my, the early part of my career in um, manufacturing economics, and I am delighted to introduce Ray Keefe. He is currently the owner and president of Lean Enterprise Strategies, LLC. Having just reti recently retired from Emerson, Ray and a colleague are working with operations-focused business in operations, strategy setting, demand-driven supply chain, lean manufacturing, pull systems, and master scheduling. At Emerson, Ray was the vice president of manufacturing, responsible to initiate Emerson's lean journey. In that role, he collaborated with global executives on change management, education, and coaching the organization. He also initiated the Complexity Reduction Initiative and the Demand-Driven Supply Chain effort. Prior to Emerson, Ray was Director of Manufacturing service for, Services for Eaton Corporation. In that role, he and a team initiated lean manufacturing globally. He also managed the Advanced Process Development Team and the Automation Consultants. Prior to Eaton, Ray ran the operations of a healthcare distributor after several years on operations consulting in many different industries. Ray is a graduate from Texas A&M University in Industrial Engineering. In today's effort on this podcast to understand where lean thinking is, we simply could ha not have a greater master. Ray, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you, Cliff. Uh, that uh, that introduction almost sounded too good. Well, let, let's start. We have we have a large audience. We have a very varied audience. So, there might be some people in the audience who are not familiar with lean thinking. So, I, I'm going to ask start with with a basic question. 
What is lean thinking, and when did it begin infiltrating the U.S. manufacturing sector? Okay, Cliff. Well, lean thinking really has a lot of different components, and sometimes it depends on which practitioner you may be listening to or which uh, author you may be reading. But fundamentally, uh, lean thinking is about focusing on the identification and passionate elimination of waste, waste in everything we do in the business. It also means quality at the source, speed of throughput, and respect for people. So we start with that premise, then we say, well, how did it get to the U.S. finally? We all knew that it was happening in Japan. We could tell just by the the inroads into the automotive industry here in the U.S. that was, you know, being made and rather dramatic. So it was back in probably around the early 80s, GE for one, noticed things were different in Japanese manufacturing, and they started sending benchmarking teams. Soon other industrial executives started going on these benchmarking trips also just to go try to find out what was happening in Japan, what was different. The, uh, at Danaher, it was an interesting early adopter, and it actually started when they, uh, they acquired Jacobs Manufacturing, who had been adopting some of the lean thinking, lean techniques, and uh, then the manufacturing approach started spreading throughout Danaher uh, into the late 80s. There were several other early adopters like wire mold and some work being done at UTC as well. One of the um, one of the challenges is that as people came back from their benchmarking trips or they read the articles or read a few books, many thought it was that lean thinking was just a bunch of tools that you go out and apply on the shop floor, and really it was a true system, and particularly with uh, the human being in the middle of that that system, and that's kind of the early days of how things got going. Hmm. You know, from listening um, to you, Ray, and listening to you for many years, it occurs to me that, you know, a true lean journey is is a very, very big investment on the part of any manufacturing company of of any size. So there must have been a a lot that motivated, you know, current U.S. manufacturers to do that. They must have felt that there was a – they must have – felt, given the, the journey and the investment they had to make, that there was a deficit in the way that they were using materials and producing, that, that they were they were frankly not competitive. Is that what they were thinking in, in as this began? Well, uh, it eventually got to that, uh, Cliff, but if you really look at the – after the early pioneers, the spread of, uh, of lean in U.S. manufacturing really crept along fairly slowly. Uh, U.S. manufacturers did not like change. They did not like to change the way they were doing business. Everything seemed to be the way they wanted to make things happen. However, uh, there was uh, the auto industry continuing to get hurt, and it was really felt in their supply base because they were squeezing their suppliers uh, for cost reductions and speed. And so it almost became a, a bit of a crisis now, what, uh, what makes that interesting, if you read a couple of the early, well, well-known books that talked about uh, stories of lean, I'm thinking of uh, The Machine That Changed the World by uh, uh, Womack and Jones and Becoming Lean by Dr. Jeffrey Liker. 
they have several case studies in there. And one thing that was common in so many of those cases is the companies that started the change was because they were in a crisis. So it really yeah. took something to shake them up to make them want to do something different. And then in time, about the time I started my lean journey in mid-90s into the late 90s, manufacturers finally, the, the light bulb came on and said, there's an opportunity. It's not just a crisis move, but now it's an opportunity for us to, to get better. And so it started spreading a little bit farther and faster. I, I, let me just ask one quick question. I, I think perhaps on for people who are, who are not familiar with lean thinking, they, they perhaps might think that it only applies to the factory floor, to production, but – that's not really true, is it? You can you can lean in, quote unquote lean out the accounting department, for example, if you want to. Is that correct? No, absolutely. In fact, uh, many of the the better successes come with uh, taking apart the, uh, the, uh, the the business practices as well as the manufacturing shop floor. Uh, again, focusing with the same tools, techniques, and attitudes. And you can get a, a great deal of uh, quality improvement, speed improvement, speed, very important, and uh, productivity improvement. And that's why, oh, probably over the last 15 years, it's been the term has started lean, going away from lean manufacturing right. into lean enterprise because it needs to permeate all of the business. If, if you can create what's what, – uh, from what I remember, if you can create what's known as a value stream map – of the processes and anything, then you can technically, if, if, if you can create a value stream map, you can lean it out. Is, is that correct? Well, that's certainly uh, the beginning point in the analysis. Okay. Uh, in most cases, it's also a darn good idea to start out with uh, a little bit of strategic thinking to make sure you're focusing on what's important to the business. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Some some businesses may be cost challenged, uh, you know, profit challenged. Others may be quality challenged. Some are lead time challenged. Some are quality challenged. Others are having issues with on-time delivery. So getting your priorities set on what your target is is very important. Then you move into the value stream mapping so that you can start uh, assessing where your bottlenecks are. Uh, where your issues might be, and again, start focusing what you're going to improve. Don't just uh, run around and try to improve everything because you'll waste a lot of time doing that. Okay, now, um, what about success stories? Do Can you point to evidence of measurable benefits? Well, yeah, almost anyone that's getting interested in this, this topic can really pick up several of these books or research several of the articles that have been uh, produced by about Lean. And there's a lot of definite case studies with the names of the companies involved. And, in fact, again, I get back to, to uh, Jeffrey Liker's book on uh, Becoming Lean. I, I forgot how many case studies he had in there, but it was quite a few. And you can start, and they, they will actually talk about the benefits. We'll talk about the uh, the savings that were involved or the improvements that were made. Um, I have, you know, been involved in lean transformations in I don't know how many hundreds of different sites between uh, Eaton and Emerson. Um, the results differ in each and every environment because the challenges are different in each and every environment. But if I was to just try to summarize uh, 
In general, what I've seen is probably productivity improvements in the uh, 20 to 50% range, quality improvements 50% plus, uh, cutting lead times in half or more, uh, same with on-time delivery, uh, and even floor space reductions of 30 to 40%. Now, that's the manufacturing side, but you can find uh, similar measurables uh, in the office side of lean as well. I seem to remember that besides there's many metrics that go along with lean, you know, assessment, with the assessment of the assessment of lean um, success. But I also remember seeing seeing it uh, portrayed in pictures. Besides looking at uh, lead times and and you know turnovers, inventory turnovers, that kind of thing, it's often displayed in a before and after kind of picture. Can you sort of describe the picture quali- qualitatively of what a what a successful lean factory floor might look like versus one that doesn't look like that? Um, are you talking about a uh, scoreboard that you would uh, share with yeah, all the employees? Yeah, something like that. Is, is that what you're referring to? Yeah. Yeah, those are, uh, those are very common use in, in a lean environment. Uh, because, you know, the numbers I'm, I'm talking about is not necessarily everybody is not numbers oriented. But if yep. you can do things graphically, it makes a big difference because you can actually see up or you could see down. Uh, right. So it's, it's, it's really gets you in focus on, on what we're doing and how well we're doing it. Uh, now, it's still critical, though, that um, uh, leadership and managers – need to carefully explain what those charts mean and what the intent is. And particularly if you can put in some uh, uh, very specific goals so you know how far you are away from, from where you're trying to get to. But, yes, the graphical presentation is is critical. Okay. Now, I, again, I, I came to understand a bit, <laughs> a bit about lean in the early 2000s. It caught on in U.S. manufacturing, certainly in the 90s, certainly in the early 2000s. But since then, there have been dramatic changes that I I would think have to impact lean practice, lean thinking. Obviously, all the new technologies that we talk about every week, every day, robotics, 3D printing. But more, I think more specifically, more importantly for lean, is the emergence of digitization in the supply chain. So I, I, I'm going to say that the manufacturing ch- supply chain is changing more rapidly than ever before with the emergence of digitization. My question to you is how will this, how will digitization impact lean practice? Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you uh, actually used the statement of uh, manufacturing supply chain. I think that's that's a uh, a critical uh, issue to talk about because if you are satisfied that you've optimized your shop floor or even optimized your business practices, if you have not carried lean thinking into the total supply chain, then you've only tackled part of the issue. And the supply chain is the real next focus of lean thinking today. You can't just stay with the uh, shop floor. Now, what about digitization? (laughs) Uh, That is a big opportunity and also uh, a a big quandary at the same time. And I'll, I'll explain what I'm talking about. But if you're going to 
take lean into the supply chain, a term I like to use is called the demand-driven supply chain, you need data. You need lots of data, lots of clean data, and you need timely data to be able to understand the dynamics that's going on in the supply chain. In this case, when we talk about the identification and elimination of waste, the waste in the supply chain is usually something to do with variation. Uh, and that variation can happen anywhere in that supply chain. That variation or the, the, the math behind that variation needs to be under, captured and understood so that you can take a, a proactive root cause analysis to try to mitigate as much of that as possible. Now, that's the good news, that digitization allows us to get a hold of that kind of data. But I have uh, two words of caution as, as people proceed into the, the digital world and the supply chain. First is to narrow the focus on what is critical, not just blanketly trying to capture every bit of data there is out there, but focus on what you've identified as critical and, uh, and hope that that is uh, useful. Any listeners to this particular program that have been involved in trying to implement a large ERP would understand what I'm talking about there. It can be overwhelming when you get actually too much information. The uh, second caution I have is uh, hiring some of the best and brightest data scientists that are, A, involved in collecting this information and also analyzing it. They cannot be just left alone, if you will, to just go out and try to, quote unquote, discover important stuff from all this data. That can be overwhelming and quite often, actually, the, the information comes back and be somewhat useless. So it's really important here to have highly experienced people that need to ask the right questions for the data analyst to go out and research. Get them focused, get them narrow. You just can't throw everything into this giant database and hope we discover good things. So the digitization error, uh, if there was ever a time in life to use the infamous 80-20 rule, that's it, is really focus on the 20% of the information that will give you 80% of the results you want. And very important to keep, keep focused and it will save a lot of time and a lot of money. Um. You know, it, it, it occurs to me as you're speaking that um, when you think about an organization and, and its holistic and its detailed form, the lean journey, uh, even especially, especially not even when it began, and especially in today's circumstances, must be bringing a lot of change to an organization, and and that takes management. Well, tell me, how have organizations managed this kind of change? Well, um, yeah, in fact, uh, in, the, in my early experiences itself, uh, you know, that might have been the biggest challenge to overcome. Uh, you know, people have been set in their ways for 10, 20, 30, 40 years of their career. That's the way things always ran. Uh, why should we change now? So, uh, yeah, change was, was a, a very important topic, and, and it actually needs to be structured carefully or you'll go nowhere. And, and I'll kind of give you a a bird's eye model of what I'm talking about here. It's it's a model that, that I have actually been following and using for, for many, many, 25 years actually. 
And that is that there's five key elements and components that need to be in place within the organization to actually make that change happen and to be sustained. And these are, first, there has to be an, a, an incentive established. In other words, answer the clear question, why change? Second is a vision. Okay, we know we have to change. What are we changing to? So you have to be able to explain the what. What is it going to look like as we're, as we're proceeding and what's it going to look like when we're done? <coughs> Excuse me. Third is an action plan, answering the question of how are we going to get there. Fourth are skills. That is, how can we, whoever we might be, from management to, to the lower levels, uh, how can we contribute to this change? And then finally, resources. Am I going to be appropriately supported in making this change? And that seems you know, kind of well and good, but still things start falling apart. And there's a little bit of diagnostic you can do uh, with this particular model. Uh, when change is not happening, there might be several reasons. First, if you're seeing very slow progress, and that usually means the incentive has not been made clear. Second possible thing you might see is confusion among the, the people. And if there's confusion, that means that vision has not been uh, clearly stated. Um, sometimes a lot of activity, <coughs> excuse me, a lot of activity but actually nothing getting done, a lot of false starts. And that usually means the action plan is, is uh, poorly done. Uh, one of the biggest things you hear about change, of course, is fear of change, anxiety or fear. And that usually means that people have not been provided the skill sets to which participate in the, in the change effort. So there's a lot of fear. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to participate. And then finally, if there's a high degree of frustration along the path of change, that usually means that resources are scarce or inconsistently applied at best. But when you get down to the bottom line, and this change model kind of exemplifies it and starts with what I said in the early days of what is lean thinking, it really comes down to people. So people is the key quotient in lean thinking. Now you put all these tools, techniques, and systems around them. That's that's kind of where I see the change effort <coughs> happening. Right. Let me just ask one more question. You you mentioned people. Is it not the case that yep. in in the move toward a lean model, a lean paradigm, that there's more team or there's more of a team orientation to the to workforce and a lean in, uh, as the lean journey progresses, that people work more together in in team in team is that the case oh absolutely because uh, as you mentioned earlier about about value stream mapping well we're talking about when we develop a value stream a document that documents how things flow uh, from beginning to end there are resources people that are involved in that value stream now, the key thing is they all have to be pulling the same rope in the same direction to make that value stream work. So that right. it's, it's an absolute requirement that they operate in teams. And that's where uh, a big focus of my attention has always been on a lot of education and training. Because to operate effectively in a team, you have to be able to be a, 
an active, uh, knowledgeable participant in that team. Then everyone can get along and they can make things happen. Just can't walk out on the shop floor, pull five people together, uh, you know, raise a magic wand and say, poof, you're a team. Uh, right. Go do good things. You, you really have to organize a team. Team is not uh, anarchy. Uh, the team is getting everybody pulling in the same direction. Ray Keith, you gave us your time. You gave us your expertise. Thank you very much for joining me today. It was a lot of fun. Thank you, Cliff. Listeners, we are talking about change today. And change is the watchword for almost every aspect of manufacturing, everything that surrounds manufacturing. We're going into our second year with Manufacturing Matters with everything up in the air. Technology is changing at a more rapid pace than we've ever seen before. The, the manufacturing workforce is changing at a more rapid pace than we ever seen, we've ever seen before. Seismic shifts in geopolitics are changing the nature of trade, the nature of markets. We're lining up episodes to deal with this. We're looking forward to the next episode, the next 100 episodes. Until then, this is Cliff Waldman reminding you that manufacturing matters, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.